strangers from distant lands, friends of old, you have been summoned here to listen to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. The Lord of the Rings trilogy stands upon the brink of its 20-year anniversary. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Each race is bound to this fate, this one doom. My companions. So be it. You shall be the Fellowship of the Ring. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is May It Be, where we wrap up our 20-plus episode coverage of Fellowship of the Ring by looking back at the film as a whole. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. So before we dive into our discussion today, I did want to make a couple announcements about our scheduling and Patreon. Uh, First, a scheduling update. Uh, Following the completion of our Fellowship of the Ring coverage, we are going to be shifting to uh, a week advance release episodes for Patreons at the $5 level at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. Um, if you are currently at that level, nothing changes for you. You will get new episodes every Tuesday like you have been. And then if you're part of the public listening audience, you will receive those same episodes a, a week later Tuesday. Um, so patrons will always be one week ahead in terms of what they are getting. To go along with that, uh, something I do with my other podcasts is we like to take breaks in between movies or seasons or games. So we will probably take a week or two off uh, between uh, Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers. But again, if you are at that $5 patron level, you will have a week shorter gap than the public. And again, my Patreon is patreon.com slash bomb, and we are sitting at 72 patrons. If we can get up to 75, we will unlock... Uh, several bonus episodes about Fellowship of the Ring, the book, and the extended edition version that we would really, really love to do before moving on to the Two Towers. Um, By the time you're hearing this, we will probably have already recorded uh, Two Towers episodes, so it may be too late. But if you have been listening and enjoying uh, me fawn over these movies and Emily go insane over these (laughs) movies, I highly recommend you uh, support us so we can bring you more insane content. (laughs) May it be an evening star shines down upon you. May it be when darkness falls, your heart will be Lord of the Rings film has a lyrical song that plays as part of the end credits, and we'll discuss each as we wrap the movies. Fellowship ends with the song May It Be by Enya, an Irish singer. The song was written by Enya and Roma Ryan, her lyricist. Enya was suggested to Peter Jackson by Howard Shore for the song. 
The music for the piece would be predominantly choirs and strings to accompany Enya's voice. The lyrics are a combination of English and Quenya and goes as follows. May it be an evening star shines down upon you. May it be when darkness falls, your heart will be true. You walk a lonely road. Oh, how far you are from home. Mornier etulier, which translates to darkness has come. Believe and you will find your way. Mornier alantier, darkness has fallen. A promise lives within you now. May it be the shadow's call will fly away. May it be you journey on to light the day. When the night is overcome, you may rise to find the sun. Mornier etulier, believe and you will find your way. Mornier alantier, a promise lives within you now. A promise lives within you now. The song, as you can tell, pretty neatly describes the state of things at the end of the fellowship. Everything is in motion in the song, in the middle of its happening. It feels of a piece with The Road Goes Ever On, Bilbo's traveling song. The road is never ending, just like story. The promise mentioned can be Frodo's promise to complete his quest, or Sam's promise to stay by his master. It could be Aragorn's promise not to not leave Pippin and Mary to torture and death, or his promise to Boromir to not let the White City fall. Hell, it could even be Gandalf promising that forces of good are also at work in this world, not just evil. I find the song to speak to the light within us, the good we carry. It repeats the refrain about darkness coming and falling, but it also says, you journey on to the light of day. Yes, the evening star and sun may light the way at times, but it's also the light in all of us that keeps us honest, gives us strength, makes us noble, and allows us to die with pride. Wait, wait, sorry, that's just Aunt May from Sam Raimi's Spider-Man Tomb. Uh, Aunt May it be? <laughs> oh, boo. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I love this. And, it, you know, even as you're kind of saying the, the lyrics to the song there, it's hard for me to, like, not be singing along in my head because it's just it's just brilliant it's this perfect encapsulation of everything um one of the things that i do uh, as it is my want uh want to point out here um is that the 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 quenya uh mornier utilier and then um utilier or mornier alantier um is sort of very obliquely a, a reference to similar language that shows up in the Silmarillion, um, specifically um, Utilianare and then Ariantaluva, which means uh, day is coming and day shall come again. Um, and that, that is, um, or Utilianare is the battle cry of uh, Fingon the Valiant and Ariantaluva is the answer of Huron during the wars of Beleriand. And to be honest, that doesn't really matter. What actually matters is that there's history littered throughout the text of both the Fellowship movie and book. And even if you like don't fully grasp what that history is, it's pretty much impossible to ignore. The Lord of the Rings generally, but Fellowship of the Ring especially, is a story told in the ruins of other greater stories. We are watching an epic story unfold in a world where epic stories no longer happen not, frankly, too dissimilar to our own world. There are, like, of course, the faint and distant echoes of greater people, greater stories, but it's not until shit gets real at Parth Galen that we start to realize that we might actually be part of one of those greater stories. And that reaching back to those old battle cries is such a lovely and brilliant way to do it, and I'm really, really delighted that they included it in May It Be. Yeah, no, that's really great. And I wish I actually had more to say about Enya, who is someone I, I would say casually enjoy. Um, because she had a lot of songs, especially in the mid to late 90s that were kind of popular here in the States. It's great um, grocery store music uh, 
for lack of a better word, but I still occasionally tell my Google Home to play Anya whenever I just feel like some low-key vibes. I think she was a really good fit for um, doing a song to end a Lord of the Rings film. I didn't realize until quite recently that there was like a a Gregorian chant kind of trend in the 90s. Um, I I was actually listening to Enya work uh, at my old job years ago now. And I was like, oh, man, like it's wild that Enya made music like this. And and one of my coworkers who, who was very much alive in the 1990s was like, just you wait until you hear what was on the charts uh, for the rest of the 1990s. And and I think it is kind of interesting that, um, and we'll get into, you know, maybe bits and pieces of why this is later on in the episode, but I do think it's kind of interesting that there's this like uh, uh, kind of re- cultural wide, culture wide kind of reaching back towards something that looks and feels like vaguely medieval at the height of the 1990s. Um, and and as I said, we'll we'll probably talk about that a little bit more uh, later. Um, but I think like Enya is you're you're totally spot on, just like the perfect kind of avatar for all of that. Fellowship, to no surprise, was a commercial and critical success. So much so, we decided to podcast about it. But just for posterity's sake, we'll run through some of those numbers. These numbers are going to seem quaint now compared to numbers that The Force Awakens and Avengers Endgame put up, but rest assured, these were massive at the time. In the US, it had a $47.2 million opening weekend, $18.2 million in the first day, opening at number one and setting a December opening record at the time. During this time, blockbusters were largely summer events, but The Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, the first film which came out a month before The Fellowship of the Ring, kind of made holiday season into a second blockbuster uh, part of the calendar year. It had similar success all over the world, setting records in Australia and New Zealand specifically. It would sell over 54 million tickets in North America during its inaugural release, and would go on to a total global box office about $860.5 million. Subsequent re-releases would push it close to $900 million, so almost close to a billion-dollar movie almost 20 years before films were doing that. Critically, it was of course a darling, with rave reviews across the board. I'm sure Emily will appreciate Roger Ebert's review, in which he says it's not a true visualization of Middle Earth, but good all the same, giving it three out of four stars, which, you know, blasphemy, but I'll allow it because Roger Ebert's a really cool dude. Fellowship also did well at the 2002 Oscars, which, if you remember from our intro episode, was one of the first things that caught my eye about these films. I am one of those giant losers who had always followed and watched the Oscars. More on that in a little bit. So anything that has any nominations, like 13, like Fellowship of the Ring did, will turn my head. Of the 13 nominations, it would win for four, cinematography, visual effects, makeup, and score. 
Its other nominations would be for Ian McKellen as Supporting Actor. He did not win, but he did take a Screen Actors Guild Award for this role. Art Direction, Director, Film Editing, Original Song, May It Be, Sound, Costume Design, Adapted Screenplay, and Best Picture. It would take the Best Film Award at the BAFTAs, a Hugo Award, and even an MTV Movie Award for the fight between Gandalf and Saruman, which is why I told you not to sleep on that goddamn wizard fight. (laughs) It would also be enshrined in American Film Institute's Top 100 Movies, the 10th Anniversary Edition from 2007, at spot number 50. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the, the sort of awards history of this film um, really encapsulates for me why I think uh, the Oscars in particular are bullshit. Um, I, I feel very, very strongly that this movie, Fellowship in particular, should have won way more of the tag stuff. And I will actually go out on a limb here and say it really should have won the adapted screenplay. Um, I think the 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 enormity and the immensity of the task that they set for themselves in in adapting, uh, in adapting the Lord of the Rings books, uh, like cannot be understated, cannot be underplayed. And you know, even as I bitch and kind of whine and complain about uh, the the adaptive choices they made, um, it is uh, an immense task, and they did it brilliantly. I think better in Fellowship than in any of the other movies, and the fact. The fact that that wasn't recognized is just total horseshit to me. Um, and, I, and I feel like for me, it's kind of like the Oscars did that thing where they they underestimate anything that isn't like cloying, pretentious wank um, and really didn't award the Lord of the Rings trilogy appropriately or or at like the 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 level that it merited until return of the king and so they ended up having to like heap a whole bunch of awards on return of the king which like to my mind is not the film that deserves not no oscars but it doesn't deserve as many oscars as it got and certainly not best picture which i think it did win um and i would have given that to to fellowship easy um and i think you know not as well kind of not giving ian mckellen uh, the the acting award is really representative of like the academy's kind of desire to only represent to only like reward or like represent a certain type of like capital A acting, and I think realistically they should be like rewarding lowercase a acting and and that's the kind of acting that Ian McKellen is doing here, which is the acting that that sort of builds out the foundation of a story and makes and and you know we'll, we'll get into this more later, but 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 makes a kind of uh. Uh, an entire world um, and, an, and an entire sort of epic story believable pretty much solely through, uh, well, not solely, but but largely through his acting ability. Um, and, you know, the fact that that wasn't recognized except for by the Screen Actors Guild is just, I just unbelievable to me. And, you know, I, I've, I have a longstanding kind of uh, grudge against the Oscars for, for the kind of garbage that they reward and the excellent movies that they don't like, especially horror films. Um, but, but this is kind of like the apotheosis of, of my gripe with, with them is, is their kind of failure to, to adequately award this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, Heath Ledger's Joker probably deserved the Oscar that he got, but I feel like that's what people look at these awards like they want to see an actor doing a thing and don't appreciate like you say the lowercase a acting that's essential like the glue characters that make a narrative work um like a lot of fellowship of the ring hinges on ian mckellen's ability to deliver exposition um to make these like bombastic fantastical fights and settings seem plausible at least from an audience point of view um, and without it, I don't know if these films are successful. Like, he is very much an anchor to this cast. Um, and specifically why Ian McKellen was cast for this. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think... So I, I don't disagree with you about the Oscars being bullshit. I think being an old man, the Oscars are part of a monoculture that doesn't exist anymore. And I, it is highly politicized. I would never look to Oscar winners specifically for any kind of guidance. Um, but I, I go back and forth because, first of all, it's very Hollywood specific. Like anything that's great outside of the realm of Hollywood rarely gets rewarded. Yeah. Um, and it's definitely not rewarding to actors of color or, you know, non-binary trans actors are not represented at all. Um, if you're a man playing a woman, you probably will be. But mm-hmm. uh, like... I don't look to them for guidance, but in a way, it's part of the historical record of cinema and Hollywood cinema, especially being such a new medium. I think we talked about this recently. And, you know, over time, I I feel like they still have like a 50 to 60 percent solid hit rate on stuff. Like it's still making sure like The Godfather won or Citizen Kane won and stuff like that. But when Martin Scorsese gets his lone Oscar for The Departed and not like Taxi Driver or Raging Bull or something like that, it's hard not to. And I think when you're talking about Return of the King, I think they basically made a conscious decision at some point. Just like, oh, we're just going to give all the words to Return of the King. But it technically applies to all the movies. Yeah, Um, I legitimately think because as we started building out our Two Towers research, I was actually shocked how few Oscar nominations the two towers got. Um, Like even in like award, like technical awards and places where you think they would for sure get those nominations. Like, no, Um, they really didn't. They got the best picture nom, uh, like a costuming and special effects, but um, even things like adapted screenplay and screen, like just completely not there, Um, which just kind of seemed weird to me. And, you know, I'm biased because the two towers is my favorite of the movies. Not, not that I'm saying I think it's the best, but it's just my favorite. Um, so I do think there's a lot of politics going around. So I always have this kind of like love hate relationship with the Oscars because they were kind of, you know, relatively important to film Twitter before film Twitter existed before Twitter existed when there was a monoculture in the eighties and nineties. Um, that is kind of how, I would hear about foreign films, especially when there wasn't, you know, foreign film advertising here. Like I learned about Studio Ghibli through Spirited Away getting a nomination mm. at the 2001 Oscars, for example. Yeah. Um. So it was before the internet. It was one of the few places that you could actually expand like your knowledge of film in a way that was kind of presented to the popular U.S. audience. Yeah. Um. So it was kind of. Undeni- not undeniable, but you kind of needed it back then as to now you really don't. It's just a bunch of political bullshit that doesn't even reward like the best films every year. Um, Cause I still felt like up until the late nineties, they were still pretty much hitting on the right movies. But now I like look at the nominations. I'm like, what is this? What yeah. is going on? Why is don't look up here? <laughs> Why is being the Ricardos on here? Like not even movie, like if they were, you know, compelling stories maybe but these movies look like shit yeah on top of not being good um but now it's like if aaron sorkin makes a movie the trial of the chicago seven it will just get nominations yeah and i I think like in in that sense there's also kind of something like i think you're you're totally right to point out that it is like this kind of important historical document because i think in in some ways like um the the conservatism of uh and, and i mean that like small c conservatism of the of the academy is is really fascinating um not just in like the things that they do do choose to reward, but but in the things that they don't. Um, and I think like the fact that there was sort of this um, like what I would say like an insufficient lack or like an insufficient recognition of the the like technical prowess of these films um, to me kind of speaks to almost this tipping point where like 
the academy, well, maybe not the academy, but like, you know, we as like a moving movie watching culture didn't realize how good we had it. And you look at the history of a lot of these sort of technical, um, uh, like disciplines in cinema in particular from 2001 to 2021, 2022. And it has been all downhill since then, including to the point at which like the Oscars are no longer televising a significant number of the technical awards. And I think the fact that there was that, that sort of, uh, uniform, I would call a uniform failure to, to adequately recognize, uh, the, 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 the feats of technical mastery and craftsmanship that, that went into the Lord of the Rings films and really is to me sort of like the harbinger of, uh, it's all going downhill from here. It's all fucked. The fact that they didn't recognize how how impressive these films were is is part of a sort of wider trend of not recognizing the importance of these technical disciplines uh, to the art of cinema um, and kind of the rise of this, like, as you say, like this kind of like individual oriented uh, approach to to watching films, which is like, you know, reward Aaron Sorkin because Aaron Sorkin is a genius or reward Christopher Nolan or or don't reward Mar- Martin Scorsese or, you, you know, that that sort of thing where it's all about like the individual director and a uh, select few major actors like Leonardo DiCaprio and and the kind of Herculean group sort of effort, the the teams behind these major figures no longer are recognized in a way that matters and and like really nothing represents that as a as a trend better than the oscars um and and so you are totally right like it is this super important uh a document or series of documents for like the history of cinema and culture yeah and i can't separate um the move towards like anti-union you know production or you know hiring scabs and just kind of the lesser importance put on the technical craft work that goes in cinema with the relegation of these awards which are i know you know people want to see their best actors and hear you know roberto benini use up all his english you know winning his oscar (laughs) god that's such an old reference i don't think anyone's going to get that one but like, you know, I actually like to know the technical awards and like the one that really like blew my mind was that they got rid of uh, original score yeah. and like song uh, from like the main telecast because those are like some of the most memorable moments of Oscars to me. Like I, I've watched most of the Oscars in my lifetime. I'm the worst. Um, but like one of the coolest things when I, was honestly Robin Williams coming out to sing Blame Canada when the <laughs> South Park uh, movie song was nominated for an award. Like those were where you get like kind of a really fascinating look at American culture at a place and time. Um, And we just don't get that anymore because we're too busy circle jerking the same group of 10 actors and five directors for the most part. Um, And like, like I I watch the Oscars, but I watch it out of habit Um, at this point. It is not something that I look forward to, but like back in 2004, 2005, I would get the Oscar nominee list and then I'd be like, Oh cool. I'm going to go to this theaters and see a double feature of frost nixon and the reader um like you know just absolute bullshit like that because we didn't we had the internet back then but it wasn't like where all content was curated and directed at you in such an aggressive manner um that you actually had to still do some work to figure out like what's out there what's good what movies are coming out that aren't from hollywood um and now that like it's better that we have access but i don't know if the things we have access to are actually better yeah yeah Um, for lack of a better word, so. Yeah, and I mean, I think, like, uh, you, you're totally right to point out this original song, and I think, in, in, in part, it's kind of because there's this generation of 
uh, like big hitter, um, uh, like whether it's composers or, or directors or cinematographers who, who are kind of aging out of uh, uh, not relevance, but aging out of eligibility. Like, you know, John Williams is, is retiring. Alan Menken no longer does. Uh, uh, well, no longer works so far as I'm aware. He may do a couple of the Disney like reboots. Um, you, you know, uh, a, a lot of these sort of major players are kind of towards the end of their careers. And so for people who uh, monitor the the stats, the metrics of the Oscars, the viewership rates. Um, they are uh, rightly or wrongly, I would suspect, under the impression that people are only going to tune into these technical or uh, non uh, upfront awards um, if they recognize the names. And since there's not really a composer who has the equivalent stature of John Williams, bar I would say maybe Hans Zimmer, they're like, well, fuck it, who cares? Like, like why would we? Why would we waste the the expensive uh, showtime when we could sell it as an ad instead. Um, and I think like that, that is it like that, that is it. Like you're, you're spot on with this like element of cura curation, like, like there is more out there, but it is also being curated in ways that we don't necessarily have control over because it's all sort of at the mercy of like the ad man and, and, and whatever. And I think you're, you're yeah, spot despite on the expanding landscape of media or art or content. Uh, it feels like it's getting almost more insular uh, in a way at the same time, which not great, not great. Yeah. And it all starts with them having not given Fellowship of the Ring all of the awards. And I am planting my flag in this uh, in this hell and I'm going to die here. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I agree with you. I would have given all three of these movies many awards, but um, I'm not objective in that. So. so that's all the boring stuff. But let's talk about how we feel about these films. Um, it should be worth noting that at least for me, but probably also for Emily, is that it's kind of hard to separate like individual film feelings from overall trilogy feelings on a lot of these things, because for the most part, they're very much of a kind and type and the same problems kind of exist in all three and the same greatness exists in all three. But so for me, I've mentioned this quite a bit of time, but The Lord of the Rings and Fellowship to start was an inflection point for film and media overall. Um, it was basically repurposing all that came before it to create something entirely new, which is not unlike what Star Wars did in 1977 or 2001 A Space Odyssey did about a decade before that. Um, it's important to me to get blockbusters like this or say The Matrix from 1999, just as I was becoming a movie watcher that I am today. Um, just a little fun fact about me, at my senior honors dinner of high school, which was in 2002, um, we had to say what you wanted to be when you grew up and who your hero was. And I said, I wanted to be a film director and my hero was Stanley mm -hmm. Kubrick. So um, that tells you of what kind of humorless guy I was at age 18. <laughs> but uh, it was important for me to get stuff like this, like our own Star Wars or Raiders, because even at the time of 2000, I wasn't very optimistic about how films were trending seemed like there was a lot more schlock coming out with everything in that teen and young adult demographic geared towards like the most obscene and 90s extreme, extreme style humor, mm. which usually entailed a lot of homophobia and misogyny in them. And, you know, we discussed last time that Fellowship out fellowship was a salve or a not a reaction, but it was a welcome change from everything else I was getting, especially from like the crass comedies of the late 90s and early 2000s which were just basically all like jerking off jokes or like dude where's my car which is actually funnier than most of its <laughs> uh peers in terms of comedy but or like rob schneider's the animal which is literally the dumbest fucking movie of all time 
Um, but, but that's the stuff like your friends in high school generally wanted to go see and hang out, um, with. And like, I was so happy that I got a movie like fellowship that wasn't like that. See, I don't really have that kind of context for it. I mean, partially because my personal context is like when, I mean, when these movies were coming out, I wasn't paying attention to them because I was like three. Um, but you know, in that kind of mid to, or mid to late 2000s kind of cultural milieu. I was uh, I lived overseas in the Middle East and we did not have access to uh to to movie theaters. So I wasn't seeing anything, you know, stuff like this until I was 5 years old anyways really until, you know, we got it on our uh, pirated DVDs, uh, which actually reminds me my my the copy of uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets that we had for for years uh when i was a kid we, we bought um in the medina and in, in rabat um and it had on the back cover um and it said the rating for chamber of secrets was of secrets was r for extreme sexual content <laughs> and to this day i'm like i Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just one of these things that sticks with me. And now, Chamber of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was also the movie that scared the shit out of me the most, um, and like ruined me for public bathrooms. So I would agree in principle with the R rating, but not for uh, sexual scenes or whatever it was. Um, but anyways, now that I, now that I've gone on onto this sort of Harry Potter thing, um, like Harry Potter was kind of my cultural touchstone in in that kind of era for 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 better or for worse, and. I guess the Star Wars sequels were also coming out at that time, or the prequels rather, but the sequels, Star Wars sequels didn't come out until I was like 17. I think the last one came out when I was like 21. Um, And so like, while this is the 20th anniversary of Fellowship and the Lord of the Rings films, there's kind of something, there's always been something kind of a little bit more timeless to them um, for me. And, you know, part of that was really because I didn't get into them until a couple of years ago. So I wasn't part of that initial kind of wave. Um, but there's something like almost divorced from the time in which they were released for me. Like, you know, I disagree with a lot of the the Harry Potter revisionism in light of JKR's turn to Christian fascism. But like, I don't think that Harry Potter on the whole has necessarily like aged well um regardless of like whatever else it is it is very much like the tony blair of franchises and the star wars prequels have their faults and like even indie the indie films i would say probably age not as well as we would have hoped but the lord of the rings films to me are so similar to the star wars original trilogy and that like the anniversaries almost don't matter anymore we just had Empire 42 years ago, I think. And like, while that's nice and cool, and like I had a fun time seeing Empire in cinema for the first time ever, that was great. That was a brilliant experience. It's almost kind of irrelevant to like the legacy of the story in a way, because Empire could have been released a year ago, or it could have been released a century ago. And I think it still would have been like endlessly fucking cool and as culturally significant. And to me, the Lord of the Rings films are kind of like that. Like they've got this cultural staying power that sets them aside from like the content churn and groan. Um, and, and I don't want that to come off as like me thinking that like you can't have good movies coming out of this like current content, like Sisyphean content cycle. Like I really like, for example, like Into the Spider-Verse. And I thought that was like a brilliantly crafted film and it made like excellent, thoughtful use of its chosen medium. But there is an extent to which something like that will always be a product of its time, if that makes sense. Whereas Lord of the Rings to me almost stands athwart that kind of very specific timeline. Like, I don't know if that makes sense, but like, like, 
I get and recognize that it's like very much a product of the 1990s, but in a way it's almost not a product of the 1990s because it feels just as much a product of 2020. What are we in 2022 now as it mm-hmm. does 2002. No, I, I totally agree with the timeless aspect. I think I used this word last time we recorded is it's kind of totemic. Um, it's almost the simplest version of the Lord of the Rings story so that it could be like, the defining fantasy story in cinema. Um, And it, it just, I I don't even like, I'm going to just stumble on words here. If I try to describe how great these movies are for what they are and how they are so timeless. But I think it's a lot of it is the simplicity of it, even though it's a very complex world that J.R.R. Tolkien created. I think they were able to, I hate to quote Christopher Nolan after we dunked on him, but I'm (laughs) thinking of Inception when they're trying to figure out how to do Inception. And Tom Hardy's character is like, you just need the simplest, absolute simplest version of the idea you're going for and run with that. And I think they really did that. And that's how you make something truly timeless. Like, I think in terms of timeless movies, the one that comes to my mind is honestly Singing in the Rain. And that one is very specifically tied to the death of silent movies and the birth of the talkie. But it's just... Even though it's very specifically about that time, the way it's shot, the way the story unfolds, the way the song and music works, it's timeless. Like you can watch it in any decade from 1950 through 20, you know, well into the future. I'd say 200 years from now, if the world is still here, which I don't think it will be, <laughs> uh, Singing in the Rain will still be a classic. Like yeah. it is perfect in that way. Yeah. I, and I mean, it, it kind of boils down to the same thing as like, you know, you know, we all like to think we're very clever when we talk about uh, uh, like the hero's journey and, and the Star, Star Wars original trilogy. But like that is in large part why those films are so successful, because they come from this like uh, incredibly strong foundation and everything else because they nailed that foundation everything else on top of that is just like a cherry on top so instead of having like a very good sunday with like one cherry on top you've got a very good sunday with like a fucking million cherries on top and and there is that sort of like excellence that uh, excellence and also kind of like um like pseudo experimental kind of behavior like in terms of the tech that you are allowed to have because that foundation is so good and and the lord of the rings films nail that foundation and so everything else on top is just fucking brilliant and i think a lot of the the sort of films that we deal with now um don't nail that foundation and so like it doesn't matter that they've got the the you know most cutting edge technology uh to to uh create uh you, you know not not to dunk always on the CGI stuff but you know it doesn't matter that they've got the most high tech CGI in the world because that narrative foundation isn't there and so there's always going to be something missing that you can't paper over with newer and better and fancier tech and the lord of the rings like star wars has that foundation there brilliantly. And so everything else is just like bellissimo. One thing that I think is interesting to me, especially with your example of Into the Spider-Verse, is how especially media uh, that's going to be coming out now, probably for the last five years and going forward indefinitely, is always going to be talking about itself in some way. Um, Like uh, Into the Spider-Verse is very much talking about all the Spider-Man movies that came before it. And the most recent Spider-Man No Way Home also does this. The latest Matrix movie is about the Matrix and The Last Jedi, which is a movie I love, is is about Star Wars. And it's nice to have the Star Wars original trilogy or the Lord of the Rings that aren't, they're not trying to, they're telling their story, but they're not trying to like reflect on itself. And it's hard to reflect on yourself when you're just starting a bigger story or universe. 
But you know that, you know, future Star Wars properties will comment on this like Last Jedi did. I'm sure the Lord of the Rings shows that show up on Prime will do this kind of thing where, you know, everything has to be about the thing in a way where it can't just be a story set in this world with these characters. I don't think I'm like phrasing myself well no, enough, no, it but it's just everything is self-referential in a way that you really didn't have because we didn't have this content assembly line like we do now. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think like part of it as well is like um, mistaking self-referential, like either humor or like narrative constructions for an engagement with like the wider sort of film landscape um and this is something that we've talked about in terms of fellowship quite a bit but like fellowship is engaging intensely with the film landscape around it and like again to go back to this this question of the star wars original trilogy the star wars original trilogy is also doing the same thing where it is intensely interested in what cinema and and well, cinema generally as a as a cultural sort of milieu is doing and what it's saying and what direction it's going in. And that's why you get, you know, George Lucas bringing in Kurosawa. That's why you get these sort of reaches into the world of like theatrical as in stage theatrical productions um, as, a, as a sort of source of inspiration. And Fellowship and The Lord of the Rings generally, The Lord of the Rings films generally are also doing that. They are interested in, in, film and cinema as a discipline and almost like an academic discipline. And they don't fall into that trap of thinking that referencing the fact that none of this is real um, is is sort of intelligent or coherent analysis. Um, you know, we all going to sit in Lord of the Rings recognize that hobbits aren't real. We all recognize that this is fictional. We are fundamentally intellectually beyond that. Um, and and because we all recognize that we're beyond that, and because the filmmakers recognize that that we can operate at a, a, a at an intellectual level above that, they can then start to say more interesting things about cinema and and you know what the kind of tools are that cinema has available to it and and and, and how stories can be told through through cinema that can't necessarily be told through novels or song or whatever. And a lot of this sort of self-referential stuff that you're talking about is operating at this kind of embarrassing intellectual level where they assume that their audiences are morons and that the only thing that the audience, that the only piece of culture that they feel like they can be certain that their audiences know is whatever came before in the franchise. So, you know, I like to talk on this podcast about Dante and the Inferno um, as a reference point for uh, for for Peter Jackson and, and Lord of the Rings or the, the pre-Raphaelite artistic movement. And I'm not operating under the the delusion that Peter Jackson thinks that every single person who's ever sat down to watch the Lord of the Rings films is also aware of who Edward Byrne Jones is or or is, you know, has read the Longfellow translation of of Dante's Inferno or whatever. But he makes a generous assumption that his audience is smart enough to realize that there is something else culturally there to engage with. Whether or not they turn around and go look at you know the the Burne Jones paintings, or go look at the, the you know read the 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 Inferno or the Purgatorio is up to them, but it's there. The average new sort of director, and I'm trying very hard not to dunk on Marvel because it's it's true of a lot of other things. You know, even the new Scream movie, um, they assume that that you haven't watched anything except for the previous film and and the franchise. And I think that is like it's tremendously pretentious, not pretentious, but like tremendously condescending. Um, and I also think it, it it sucks because it makes cinema as an art form dumber. <laughs> like because they because these filmmakers assume that we're all like 
you know, drooling idiots who who can't engage with the world around us and can only engage with the previous Thor movie or the previous uh, Star Wars movie or the previous Star Trek alternate original series movie. We all are suffering and like like film generally is suffering. Whereas even if Peter Jackson can't be certain that we've all read these books or seen these paintings, he can make the assumption that we're clever enough to do it and that we, you know, we're like self-sufficient enough to handle it. And that's why these films stand head and shoulders above everything else. I I really love that point. Um, I'm thinking of a Two Towers example when uh, Gandalf and Eomer are rushing uh, the Urukai to end the Helm's Deep battle. And my first thought is, I've seen Braveheart. The orcs just have to put their spears up and then the horses will all run (laughs) into them and die. And, you know, thus the bad guys win. But then, you know... Peter Jackson, probably also having seen Braveheart, which was like a huge movie back in the 90s, you know, he uses the sun and Gandalf's light to give a reason for the Urukai to lift up their spears at the last second and not, you know, slaughter all the horses. And that to me, I don't know if it was intentional or not, was that film in conversation with other films that yeah. had come before it and had done big set pieces like a horse charge yeah. in medieval warfare. Um, and like, that was, and I don't think I'm the only one because when we got out of that, my best friend Hossein, he also said the same thing about it. It's like, oh, I thought they were going to Braveheart that shit. <laughs> um, and then, but like, no, it's like, no, it's, that's why I'd like to talk about like the ongoing, like the evolution of cinema, but it's also like, I can't think of any good examples, but watching 90s action movies, you would see like, oh, this diehard movie ends this way. So an action movie that comes out four years later would want you to be thinking about the way Die Hard ended so we can do a completely different twist on that kind of thing. Um, And like you say, now it only cares that you watch other things with the same IP title attached to it. I think that's a fascinating and astute observation, really. Well, and this is why I think like a lot of this is this sort of like meta discourse about like subverting tropes doesn't work because, um, you know, if if the Game of Thrones TV show wants to subvert tropes, um, it has to be aware of tropes that exist out with its own sort of like franchise or IP. Um, And the reason why like towards the end of the series, I think a lot of this stuff wasn't as compelling. A lot of these like quote unquote subversions weren't compelling because they were subverting things that were only tropes that only existed in Game of Thrones. And it's like, but but we're already in the habit of assuming that Game of Thrones is going to subvert. So it's subverting the subverting the subverting the subverting and it's boring. It's just boring at that point. And, and, you know, I, as I will continue to argue throughout this podcast, Lord of the Rings as both films and and books subvert tropes that exist beyond Lord of the Rings. And that's why they're significant. Like that's why they're important is because they are, they are looking at these, um, uh, you know, wider expectations that, that the, the writers or the filmmakers can sort of broadly assume we all as the audience have going into them and then say, how do we change this to have to say something of import, not just to be edgy or subversive for the sake of being edgy and subversive and to to make sure that we're trending at the top of Reddit's front page, but to say something about culture or politics or the world around us. What do we need to change about these tropes? And whether it's this softer masculinity or whether it's Frodo not actually being the one to, to chuck the ring into Mount Doom those subversions are saying something as opposed to 
the Game of Thrones and where, and I'm sure uh, Song of Ice and Fire will tie it up more neatly, but where it's just uh, Daenerys Targaryen uh, has sex and goes crazy uh, and bitches be crazy. Like, that's not subverting anything and that's not really saying anything. Or it is, but it's not saying, I think, what the the, the showrunners maybe want it to say. And, and I think that's like the crucial kind of fill for me. Mm-hmm. No, I think I completely agree with that. So moving on, I just also want to touch about some of the themes uh, in the film overall. And we've kind of hammered home this point again. Um, You probably have a bingo card at home that has story about stories. If it's not your free space, it probably should be because it's not even worth mentioning it. But again, I just love the idea that, you know, some people hop on, others hop off, but the story just goes ever forward. Not unlike the road, it goes on forever, but it also you know, loops back again, like a uh, loops back again, like a loop. <laughs> Duh. Uh, but you know, it loops back again, there and back again. That's what the phrase is. You know, it's uh, it's about returning home, as Sam will say in later films. And you know, it's like the ring in that sense. It has no start. It has no end. It just kind of goes in a circle forever. And I think this specifically hit me hard at the time of two thousand one, um, because this was also the halcyon da- days of my Metal Gear fandom, and those games are. The, the word that people would use is meta, which, you know, I find kind of grating nowadays, but it explicit, it's a game that actually explicitly addressed form and function of gaming. It was something that took full advantage of the console, the back of the, what's it called? The case that your game came in had a story important clue on it that you couldn't get anywhere. And this was before the internet. Mm. Um, so like it very much engaged with not just what's on screen or the person who's watching it, but kind of that space in between and all the like nebulousness in between there. So I really like the fact that this, like it was commenting on story in a way that felt timeless. You know, we're using timeless in a different way now, Um, but it felt like it was commenting on the form and function itself in a way that not a lot of movies and especially not a lot of blockbusters did Sec, maybe the matrix yeah no i i actually think that's really interesting what, what you're saying there about like the the metal gear solid box because that in itself is something that like it, like i agree like it is sort of d- d- divorced in a way from like time or like uh sort of exists outside of like a timeline but but in another way it's like something that is like intimately connected to like modernity um and and in sort of like the historical construction of modernity which is like uh you know post-columbian exchange um and and to me one of the the sort of crucial components of uh, of modernity, and I'm and I'm really sorry for how wanky this is going to sound, but I promise this does have a point. Is is the rise of industrialization, and as part of the rise of industrialization, uh, the, the 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 sort of rise of uh, uh, of um, similarity as something that exists, um, and uh, uniformity, and I don't mean that in the sort of boring I listen to Pink Floyd way, but like um, before the invention of the Gutenberg printing press, before the invention of uh, uh, steam engineering that would allow for a uh, rapid and consistent publication of books, two people could have a copy of the same book, which is to say a book that told the same story and had the same words in it. But there was nothing to ensure that the cover was the same, the title imprint was the same, the markings on the inside, the print, the typeface, the block was the same. Two copies of the same book, you know, even potentially printed by the same publisher in the same publishing house, would be incredibly different copies of books. And though the story within would be similar, 
they would be incredibly divergent in other ways. And that 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 Metal Gear Solid uh, example to me says like it is reliant on the the sort of existence of uniformity and like industrialized uniformity. You have to know that every single copy of that box that you are sending out is going to have that printing in the exact correct place that it's legible, that, that it's, that it's accessible, that, you know, your players aren't going to be screwed over because uh, the box that they got was actually printed in Berlin rather than London. And so uh, the, the, the typeface and the typeset or whatever was, was totally different. Um, and that is something that's like intimately tied to, to both like the successes of modernity but also um some of the potential flaws of modernity which is like this death of kind of uniqueness and this is where like the i listen to pink floyd so i'm edgy and uh fuck the man or whatever uh element comes into this um and and also this also sort of connects more broadly to like what both the lord of the rings films and the lord of the rings books are doing um which is asking questions about how we tell stories in modernity in these the, the, the confines of modern life. Um, and I know I sort of waste a lot of breath on this podcast, emphasizing the differences between the 1940s and the 1990s, but culturally, um, as a sort of overarching narrative of both decades, they both deal quite fundamentally with this like problem or crisis of modernity. So like the 1990s have this like incredibly visceral crisis, which is of course uh, World War II and the 90s have this kind of thin veneer of success with like the dot-com boom but both still have this underlying insecurity that most of the rules of engagement for the previous previous 1,000 years of life have kind of been functionally chucked out of the window and so even though there are these like very significant divergences between the Lord of the Rings books and the Lord of the Rings films thematically they're both grappling with this question of stories and narratives in the modern world. And that to me is like such like a, a, a brilliant and deeply important component of discussing these films. Yeah, no, I think both the books and the films kind of are at this like doorstep of a change or a paradigm shift in terms of the times, um, whether it's the, you know, the post world war two, you know, geopolitical landscape and then heading into the late 90s and early 2000s, before 9-11, uh, yeah. when these films were made, was, you know, the kind of end of history. But also the Internet was new and a wild west and was literally changing everything, um, you know, from business to communication, uh, like simple things. I'm not trying to talk, you know, about the business world, but even like all of a sudden my family can talk to our family back in India, like instantly all yeah. the time or send emails or, you know, wire money that doesn't have to go through like arrow mail you know through mm -hmm. like a post office in siam that you know i don't think that country exists now no. anymore <laughs> um so it's like it, like there was just like so much changing and a lot of uncertainty in a way um and like you said it's a problem of modernity like what what comes next was really on the minds of everyone in both of the eras yeah yeah absolutely Another theme I really liked about The Fellowship of the Ring is the, necessi the necessity of community, which literally fellowship. Mm -hmm. uh, I know we ding these films for its more rugged individualist takes on these book characters, but in the end, it still felt more about solidarity and communal love than pretty much most films around its time. Yeah, and, and, and most films generally, to be honest, like, I think for as much as I, I bitch and moan about the rugged individualism, I think there is a genuine attempt to reconcile rugged individualism with that sort of like innate human need for communion. Um, and like Peter Jackson himself is like no great ideologue. So I think he 
and I'm not trying to sound condescending, but I don't think he necessarily has like the tools in his toolkit to, to grapple with it adequately. Um, but these films are like at their core, a very genuine and earnest attempt to deal with the world as it is. And like maybe to make sort of steps towards what the world should be. Oh, very much so. And I think we can just kind of talk about how we feel about the film overall, which if you hadn't figured out with the 40 plus hours of podcasts we've recorded (laughs) by now, um, but I don't know, it's, it's just great. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm basically unable to separate my emotions from like rational thinking. And, you know, you've heard me, I'm hesitant to ding these movies in even the slightest way. (laughs) And that's not really me trying to be defensive about it. It's just as they are or as they were with zero preconceptions on my part, they are perfection. No notes. Of course, now I have notes, uh, (laughs) things I'd like to see changed. Um, But overall, I'm very good personally about, you know, preserving those first time emotions that I had, even as I add 20 years of brain worms thinking about them. Um, you know, with a hundred successive viewing since 2001. And at this point, everything in this movie and technically all three movies just makes me cry. <laughs> uh, last summer, I was in the process of making several serious decisions about my life. And after I came to those decisions, I treated myself to a day off with Fellowship of the mm. Ring. And guess what? I started crying five seconds into Galadriel's prologue. (laughs) And not for any real reason. I just knew that there were three to ten hours of entertainment ahead of me, filled with emotion, catharsis, heartbreak, and victory. And essentially, I felt all of that at once the second I heard Kate Blanchett's voice. And really, I guess that's the power of story. Um, You know, I wouldn't be going on about a story about stories if I didn't think the idea of a story you know, meant a lot to us as individuals, but also as a way to forge bonds of fellowship with others and to pass down our history and our cultural memes to future generations. Um, It is what we leave behind, our legacy in a way. Mm. And with no disrespect to a gajillion other great movies that came out in my lifetime, these are the ones I'm most excited to share and pass on with others, bar none, you know, save a Metal Gear Solid game here or there. But, you know, the like I said in our very first episode, these are like one of the, like the formative touchstone pieces of art that I'm going to carry with me forever and hope to pass down uh, to whoever's in my in- intimate circles. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Like, I, I'm also like, I'm quite like a... I don't know if mercurial is the right word for it, but like I, I'm like a fairly unforgiving person in terms of things that like I don't like, which is to say like if I don't like something, I I don't I don't engage with it. Like I totally disengage. I like tune it out. You know, it's not like I I spend my time thinking about things that I hate. I don't really get any enjoyment out of that. Like the reason why I'm so hard on these films is because I love them. Like, and the reason why I kind of sit here and spend fucking hours every week sitting and thinking about them is because they are to me brilliant films that are worth thinking about. And, and I am very good at kind of turning my brain off when I don't think that something is worth the time and effort. And like in so many ways, fellowship of the ring is like the movie for me, if that makes sense. Um, not to like, poor little rich kid it up. Um, but I got into these movies and these books when I was doing my post postgrad at Cambridge. Um, and for like those of our listeners who haven't had to deal with like literally the worst echelons of British society, Cambridge is like a really alienating place to be like, not just politically and socially, but like morally, spiritually and financially. Um, but like, even despite that, there's kind of something almost like paradoxically utopian about all of it. 
um, I used to sort of joke that like Cambridge is why the Green Party of England and Wales won't properly condemn the or disavow the empire. Because in Cambridge, you've got like all of the wealth of the British Empire, the world's most evil empire, going into like installing perfectly smooth bike lanes and beautiful public parks and that sort of thing. And so like, even though Cambridge was kind of hell on earth for me and represented a place where I was like deeply, deeply sad literally all of the time, 24-7, it was also kind of uncomfortably a place I knew immediately that I was going to be nostalgic for. Um, Because like for me, there was sort of this pride in having gotten in, this excitement at getting to spend like a whole year at a town steeped in tangible history. Like just down the road from where I live, there was the apple tree grafted from the one at Newton's Orchard where he first hypothesized gravity or the pubs where like the CPGB historians group like E.P. Thompson, Eric Hobsbawm, et cetera, used to go boozing. And that was like something that was deeply important to me as someone who's like typically been quite alienated from from like community and the world around me. And then, of course, there's like the beauty of it, the lush rolling hills, the immense architecture, the sunny blue skies, which is really crucial for someone who spent four years prior to that living in Scotland. Um, and in a lot of ways, it kind of immediately became analogous to like my shire. Um, this is the place that should have been perfect, but ultimately couldn't be because the pulls and pressures of reality were too great. And that kind of complex and like uncomfortable feeling has never been articulated better than the nuanced kind of joyful melancholy that fellowship has. I mean, there's like kind of just this feeling all the way through the start of fellowship that there's like safety here, there's this comfort, but there's also this kind of knowledge that safety and comfort it, like isn't really all that they've chalked up to be. And that, like, at some point, you're going to have to let it go. You're going to have to have to let that kind of paradisal dream go. And, like, nothing in the world gets that better than this film. And, I, I you know, I talk about uh, Fellowship as sort of the, like, childhood and teenage years of the, the Lord of the Rings narrative, both in the film and in the books. And I think that's really true. Like, you know, that that year for me, um, I was, what was I? I was like 20, 21, 22, I think. Um, and that was kind of the moment for me where I was like, oh my God, like sometimes I will make choices and they will be fucking awful and I will just have to live with them. And now I am an adult. And it was also like the first year of the pandemic. Like, uh, like there was a lot that was going on in the world. And there was this sort of moment where I was like, the things around me right now are, are kind of idyllic, but but like in reality, everything's about to suck a lot more than it's ever sucked before. And as I was, you know, reading and reading the books and watching the movies again, I was like, this gets it. Like it isn't intending to get it, it isn't trying to get it, but this movie gets it. And and it's hard to then turn away from that and and to kind of close that feeling off, like you're saying, that, that sort of first instinct feeling, because that will always be there. And so fellowship for me is like. I can critique it and I can bitch about some of the adaptation choices, but in the end, like it will always be that thing that incidentally and like inadvertently articulated everything that I needed something to articulate at that moment in my life. No, I totally get that. Uh, it's a little bit more two towers for me, but I think that just appeals more to like my action fantasy bro-y tendency. <laughs> um, but it was like that kind of revelation to me. Um, in a slightly different way, in a definitely a far less intellectual way. Um, but um, you mentioned safety and comfort there. Um, and I know you meant it in a different context, but I think it's a little bit worth discussing how these movies matter to like the rest of the world, or at least, you know, our friends and the broader, you know, audiences, because these are movies that everyone loves and do view as comfort watching, as a warm hug of a movie. Uh, most of my friends, 
Uh, again, I'm probably biased because, you know, I have a Lord of the Rings podcast, but they're watching these movies, if not at least once a year, um, but usually like several times a year. And, you know, a lot of times it'll be like, oh, I caught Fellowship on TV. So afterwards, I decided to throw in the Blu-rays of <laughs> Two Towers and Return of the King. Um, it just it's a testament, I think, to these movies that people have such positive associations with them just, you know, beyond the quality of these films and these stories. But like, it literally means a lot personally and intimately to audiences around the world. Yeah. And I think it's also that kind of like, there's, there's something quite nice because like, you know, you've spoken quite a bit about like the death of monoculture Um, and, and the Lord of the Rings. um, And I'm going to say this and somewhere in the distance, a monkey's paw is going to curl, but the, the Lord of the Rings, films are are kind of these films that people can enjoy um without the kind of cloying annoying discourse that goes hand in hand where you have to like sort of performatively feel ashamed for liking them um like star wars has always had that where like people who weren't the sort of uh broken glasses kind of nerds would be like i'm really like oh how embarrassing for me to like these things um Lord of the Rings doesn't really have that in the same way. And so you can like it and you can be very open about liking it and you don't have to perform this kind of shame. And I think that is like really key. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've, I mean, I run away from half the things that I profess to love, whether it's Star Wars or less so the MCU now, but even like, you know, Game of Thrones was, you know, another example. Like I apologize before I begin speaking about them mm-hmm. 90% of the time, but I never really feel that way about Lord of the Rings. And um, I never really thought about that, but yeah, um, I don't feel like I have to make space to love the Lord of the Rings. I feel like that's the space I'm already in at all times with everyone around me. Yeah, it's Lord of the fucking Rings, man. Hell yeah. And another thing that, uh, another part of its legacy is kind of how it laid down the gauntlet or how it added to the you know development of cinematic history as it relates to being the first part of a trilogy or a long-running series. In terms of like being the first installments of series, it's right up there with, you know, the greats, you know, Star Wars 1977, The Godfather from 1972, or Alien from 1979, I believe. So, uh, I mean, that's like esteemed company. Um, And, you know, there's, you know, like The Matrix is probably another great first installment, but those had like sequels that people thought lesser. So like it isn't viewed as a great series in the same way those others are. Um, even like something like The Godfather and Star Wars, the third installments in those trilogies are generally considered lesser um, than their, uh, what's it called, previous two installments. And, you know, I, I'm with Emily in terms of I think Return of the King is the weakest of the three films. But I mean, they're all roughly in that same level of quality that I don't, it's not like a material difference to me. Yeah. Like it's material to me because of how much I care about them. But anyone else who like looked at my letterbox ratings of these three movies was like, oh, he likes them all the same pretty much. Yeah. Um, so um, I think, you know, setting down that great first installment is very key to what uh, Lord of the Rings does. Um, and I generally think people, we're going to talk about this a little later, but I think people generally prefer The Fellowship as the best of the three films. Yes. Um, so there's also that. And I think the other thing that, you know, it had an impact on, especially for blockbuster cinema, is its kind of cliffhanger story and progress ending that is at the, what's it called, end of fellowship. And it, I mean, it's obviously not the first movie to do it. Empire Strikes Back was, you know, probably the one we looked to. And when fellowship ended in theaters, my first thought was, oh, this kind of ended like Empire Strikes Back did in that it's kind of melancholy. It seemed like all the plot threads 
kind of ended in a big L in a way. Yeah. Um, and the best we got is that our heroes are still alive and hopefully in the next time out, they'll be able to set things right. Yeah. No, I think that Empire thing is actually really significant because like uh, Star Wars... And I think this is something that I often have to remind myself of as uh, someone born in the year 1998. Um, Star Wars A New Hope was not always A New Hope. It was Star Wars. Um, it was a self-contained movie that theoretically could never have had any sequels or follow-ups to it or prequels or whatever um, and still have told a story. Um so Empire is the first time that there's sort of this assurance that there will be a follow-up to it. Um, and Fellowship is unique and lucky, um, and I would say probably unique and lucky uh, uh, compared to almost all major kind of first installments and trilogies um, or duologies, I guess, in the case of Dune, which is the other key exception here, um, in that it knows that it's coming back for movies two and three. And so it can do that Empire Strikes Back ending on on melancholy and the 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 good guys have lost and we are all shit out of luck right now because it knows it's coming back and for that very fact i think there is actually something like super super unique about it um in that it's kind of like stick and carroting you in in some ways like there is you know there is something nice in that sam and frodo are now going to go off together and aragorn has this shania twain moment but like you won't get that that like ultimate ending joy of having completed something for two movies now. And they're not even going to pretend to give you that. Star Wars has to pretend to give you that. Um, Alien has to pretend to give you that. And that I think is actually like really crucial to to the kind of success of this movie is this recognition that like you're coming back for the next two installments because you fucking love this movie and we know you fucking love this movie. And you're going to have to sit through all of it and you're going to have to not like rely on instant gratification for a reason to come back. You are going to have to, to sort of hold patience in your heart before you get this ultimate relief at the end. And that I think is just like absolutely crucial. Mm -hmm. And I do like how that kind of comes at the end of the first movie, because I feel like most film trilogies go the star Wars route where, and I, I don't want to, you know, put it on Star Wars because it's very common that the second act, which is usually the second film in a trilogy, ends with the lowest point in the story. But even like if you look at Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, Batman Begins ends on a good note. The middle Dark Knight ends on a melancholy note because he has to go into hiding or exile or whatever you want to call it before they wrap things up in the third. And I think that's pretty much how all trilogies, or at least the cookie cutter ones. And I, you know, I like the Nolan movies, but I feel like everyone just like, oh, the second movie's where it gets dark and has a really depressing ending. Um, the first one's to get you in the door and leave you with a happy experience. And the third one is to wrap everything up. And it was nice that Fellowship was just a little bit different in that regard. And I'm also glad that you mentioned Dune there because mm -hmm. uh, when Dune came out last fall, a lot of people made an analogy between the way that movie ended and how this movie ended, uh, specifically kind of like a smaller stakes kind of brawl or squabble uh, between Paul and Jameis, I think his name is. I'm sorry, I'm not a Dune scholar. Um, but it's just kind of like after a big sweeping epic, um, you kind of boil it down to kind of a more intimate ending with kind of like smaller stakes with a smaller set of characters. And we expect the sequels, sequel at least for Dune, um, to get a lot bigger and go into the, you know, grandiose again. Um, but I think a lot of people with how Dune ended um, and kind of like the stakes in that kind of last encounter uh, found a lot of similarities between that and how Fellowship of the Ring ended. 
so I think I've come up with a fun segment for these end-of-film wrap-ups. I've been terminally online since 1996, so that means I have been online fawning over over these movies since 2001. In the 20 years of these movies, I've heard every permutation of obviously Fellowship is the best film, obviously Return of the King is the best, and of course, my homies, the obviously (laughs) The Two Towers is the best of the movies. And while I don't fret about rating aggregation sites, they tend to be all over too. Rotten Tomatoes has The Two Towers as its best rated of the trilogy, Letterboxd and Metacritic has Return of the King up top, and Fellowship of the Ring is the lone entry in AFI's top 100 films, (sighs) and I think the one I mentioned earlier that people tend to favor the most. But in all these cases, the differences in score are negligible. Given that, and given that these three films are so intricately tied to not just you know, in story but production, I think having us rank these movies is kind of boring and not super illuminating since we generally agree their quality is consistent. So instead of that approach, I want to roll with the segment where we argue that the movie we just finished is the best of the bunch. Today we will talk about why Fellowship of the Ring should be the best Lord of the Rings film, but when we finish The Two Towers, we will talk about why that should be considered the best. (laughs) You may be thinking, that's fine and good, but what if you do The Hobbit films? And my answer is yes, absolutely. (laughs) In a few years, you will have to hear Emily and I contort our brains into treating the Hobbit films as peak legendarium adaptation. It's an impossible argument, but I'm sure we can make it. (laughs) But anyway, so Fellowship of the Ring, why is it the best adaptation, Emily? Oh, boy. Uh, Yeah, well, with that that, uh, potential gauntlet thrown down, uh, now I have to reconsider some of my arguments. Um. Yeah, so I, I guess for me, like the the important kind of uh, like starting threshold or metric here is like a recognition that no adaptation is going to be perfect, um, and that like certain choices and sacrifices must necessarily be made. Um, recognizing that, however, it's absolutely imperative that filmmakers have the courage of their convictions when they are making those sacrifices. Fellowship to me feels like the one instance in these three where the filmmakers are ahead of the curve in terms of their adaptational choices. The remaining movies feel to me a bit by it, like they got outpaced by the books. And so they were sort of forced into changes that they weren't totally content with. Fellowship is like the one where the production team seems to me to have spent the most time sitting with the book and the text of the book and thinking about what changes were necessary. So the changes kind of feel more purposeful and confident. And it seems like if you picked up a thread of change in fellowship and grilled the production team on why they made that change, I think fellowship is the, the, the movie of the three where they would be able to give the most coherent and probably convincing answer. And I think that tends to fall away in the next two. And I think crucially, um, and I, uh, because I'm a very paranoid person, I was like running through this point with my partner earlier today. And I was like, does this sound like the ramblings of a crazy person? Um, and he was like, it's not the ramblings of a crazy person necessarily, but as a parody of yourself. Uh, and it's true. So, so, so given that I'm about to become a, a parody of myself, um, I, I think fellowship is the best because it's the, the movie that gets like the texture of the writing in the book down best. Um, even though in Fellowship, more so than any of the movies bar Return of the King, they're like vast swathes of the book that aren't adapted. The filmmaking itself of Fellowship is literally so fucking close to the writing style of the book. And that to me really feels 
absolutely crucial to understanding like why this is by far and away the best adaptation. In a lot of films, there is a sort of adaptations, I should say, there is a sort of translation process that goes on. And in Fellowship, it feels like a proper translation has been done, not a Google Translate translation. And what that kind of means is like, we're going like for like in terms of words that convey the same thing rather than like for like in terms of words that mean the same thing. So if you're translating, for example, poetry from English to Arabic or Arabic to English, you have two sort of routes that you could go in translation. You could translate one word in English to a word in Arabic that means the same thing. That means in in, in a dictionary, they both have the same definition. Or you could translate the word for English to Arabic using the word in Arabic that conveys the same thing, even if the definitions aren't strictly identical. And that involves bringing in a wider awareness of the world and how words, or in this case, filmmaking choices, relate to that, wor- relate to that world. And it involves and requires being clear-headed about what you're doing and being aware of the function of, in this case, poetry or film and writing, book writing, and being aware of that and how you can use that to, to best suit your purpose. And Fellowship to me is like, this is the movie that gets it absolutely spot, spot on. It is its own sort of poetic translation, not a Google Translate translation or a refusal to translate uh, uh, do you speak English here sort of approach. And, and that, that to me is like, good, like this is the filmmakers being really thoughtful and coherent about what they're doing. And then sort of to a lesser extent, but but uh, not a significantly lesser extent, there, there's like the lightness and innocence of it. Um, you know, I've said this a billion times already, but like this is the childhood of the series. And it's important to me in some ways that there's not a lot of moral grayness to it. Because I think once the Lord of the Rings narrative gets political, it gets really political and it gets really political really quickly. And there's a lot of room for error on the sort of politics of the Lord of the Rings. Um, and fellowship is is sort of blessed in some ways in that the politics that are present in uh, in the narrative are actually fairly cut and dry and it's quite hard to get them wrong. And so that lends itself to this kind of feeling of like lightness and and innocence and and this sort of ability to kind of in a way, turn your brain off. And I know that's something I, I tend to advocate against, but there is like an easiness to it. You can you can sit and turn this on at any point and you don't have to think too terribly hard about whether what you're watching is like royalist propaganda that you should like really sort of prepare to like intellectually combat or whatever. It's just a childhood sort of movie where you can feel good about the nostalgia and feel good about the environment. And that is like... That's it. That's the that is the value and the and the, the brilliance of this adaptation. And and genuinely why I will argue that is absolutely by far and away the best talking adaptation on film. Yeah, if I had to argue for the case of fellowship being the best, I think I would just make an appeal to simplicity and linearity. It's the most straightforward of the three films, with really one main plot thread that drives us from beginning to end. We start with Frodo and follow him along the way. He picks up several allies and loses a couple, but it's still basically his journey from the Shire to the Emin Muil and everything that precipitated that occurrence. Contrasted with other films, there's a lot less juggling of characters, even when the Fellowship is at full strength. And surprisingly, no one feels short-shrifted here, in my opinion at least. The time spent with the Hobbits, Gandalf, and Aragorn early helps build them up when less is going on otherwise. 
Gimli doesn't have much, but his dialogue is well-rooted in who he is. Legolas has even less, and that's fine. He's the physical performer. He's like Yen from the Ocean's Eleven movies, (laughs) the guy who does the crazy flip shit, which gives ample time to set up Boromir for his plot machinations in the back half of the movie. The sequels, one of which I love the mostest, have just wider scopes and scales to them, and necessarily all those threads get simplified and streamlined to fit in the confines of a three-hour blockbuster, which means some of the seams show a little bit in those movies, having to use shortcuts and cinematic shorthands to build stakes or communicate information. And of course, there's Sean Bean in this one. <laughs> if there's one thing the other movies clearly lack, is Ned Stark, Warden of the North, and former British MI6 agent. <laughs> and just the utter genius of how the whole ending of this film works around his death, uh, which we discussed in depth last time, I think all makes this one of the better or is one of the reasons I'd argue it is the best of the trilogy. Along those lines, I think Moria, and specifically the Balrog. There's a reason we asked Emmett on for that scene. It's widely considered one of the best sequences in modern cinema, rivaled by few others, though I personally do have Helm's Deep up there with it. It's a perfect synthesis of tone, adventure, character work, tragedy, and excitement. It's why we love the movies, baby. And lastly, The Shire, and a full round of Concerning Hobbits, which I'll reiterate was both mine and Emily's number one track on our (laughs) Spotify raps from last year. Uh, The Shire is a key aesthetic piece to these movies, and when I think about the joys of these movies, about, hey, I'm going to watch The Lord of the Rings tonight, I think what I'm mentally picturing is The Shire and Frodo reading under a tree. It symbolizes warmth and comfort that these movies kind of deliver to me in a broad sense. So now we can really briefly talk about some of our favorite performances, and we'll try to limit it here because, you know, all the performances are pretty good, and we're also (laughs) going to have to talk about pretty much the same performances in subsequent movies. But I think, you know, we can mention Sean Bean here, but I think we've spent a lot of time on him, and rightly so. Um, But I think, you know, Ian McKellen, you know, the, the lone acting nomination out of the entire cast for these three movies deserves some love. So what do you got to say about that, Emily? Oh, I mean, he is like the 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 moral spine, the the sort of foundation, the keystone of these films. And I, you know, so, so much about this story hinges on Gandalf. If Gandalf couldn't sell the exposition and backstory of this, this whole film would have collapsed in on itself. And he, Ian McKellen, does it just so brilliantly and takes who who I'd consider to be quite like an odious character in the books and makes him into that brilliant sort of magic grandpa that that we all, myself included, have to love. And there is there is no amount of words or writing that I could waste on this to to say better than the fact that, uh, or, or better than the, the the simple phrase that he is basically perfect in this. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. Um, and uh, you're right to, you know, yell at the Oscars for not uh, awarding him uh, a gold statue for this one. One I want to mention, which might seem kind of like an odd one, but I want to mention Dominic Monaghan here, uh, who mm-hmm. plays Marietta Brandybuck, mostly because we're going to talk a lot more about the other hobbits in the future films. Uh, I really like Pippin in The Two Towers. And then obviously Sam really comes into his own in Return of the King. And Frodo is, of course, you know, possibly the main character of the story, probably the main character of the story. So he gets a lot of attention, but we don't talk about Mary as much. And Dominic Monaghan, I specifically want to highlight 
um, because I've tried to call it out during the course of our coverage of Fellowship, but he doesn't have a lot. But when he does have lines, it's usually really smart, like the way it reflects his canniness or his loyalty to Frodo. Like all of it just kind of feels of a piece. And he, like, he, there's conviction in it when he's telling Frodo to go and run when they're at Parth Galen. Like you can feel that. You can feel the dedication, the loyalty, the love he has for Frodo in those moments. Um, I, I just think it's a it's a really great performance. I think he's great in all three movies. It's just I'm less interested in what he's doing in the other three movies. And I know he has a lot of AO and stuff in Return of the King, so I apologize if that's a sore spot for you. No, nah, no. Nah. Um, I, I I think the the few lines he's given and few moments he's given in Fellowship kind of shine to me at least after 130 viewings of this movie. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely co-sign every single word of that. And I think also, like, I've got this weird prejudice against Don Monaghan after I found out that the only reason he was in uh, the last Star Wars film is because he won a bet over the FIFA World Cup. So ever since then, I've been like, fuck that guy. Um, but even even, even then, even with that sort of immense hatred that I feel in my heart for him, uh, it's it's impossible to not love his performance in this film. So how about favorite scene or favorite moment from these films? Oh, I mean, the Shire. Like, it has to be the Shire. I, I, you know, we talk so much about this, but, but nothing will ever set a film up better than that just brilliant, lovely shot of, or all of those sort of documentary style shots of, of the Shire. It's perfect. It gets the tone right. It sets up the thing that for the next two and a half movies, even oblique references to the Shire will be enough to make us weep. Um, and and it all kind of hinges on that that 10 15 minutes that we spend there and it they just they just fucking nail it oh yeah i totally agree as i recently rewatched the two towers um for for being the only movie of the three that doesn't have any scenes set in the shire um they always keep it at front of mind uh especially with mary and pippin but also with frodo and sam um and i think the reason they do is because of how powerful that introductory scene was um, I like that you called it a documentary because it very much is the way that they work in Ian McKellen's talking to Frodo as kind of like a narration over the top of documentary footage as we see the life and times of being in the Shire. Um, it's just really effective because it's doing it's doing a lot both in terms of setting mood, but also world building and actually conveying facts and information we need to know to care about the story. Um, it's it's cinematic economy in its best possible version. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the ones I'd mention, I almost feel like not really talking about in detail because we've talked about them very recently, but it would be that Balrog encounter and Boromir's last stand in death. But I'll also call back to one of our earlier episodes because I think everything that happened at Weathertop, um, at Amon Sul with uh, the Nazgul, with Frodo getting stabbed, with Aragorn you know, showing up with steel and fire, I think that's just a tremendous set piece. And like we said at the time, it kind of laid down as like, this is how action and kinetic this story is going to be moving forward. For better or for worse, for me, it's better. Um, but it was also very inventive at its time comparing it to other action films or the way other action sequences would be shot and depicted in films of the time. Um, it felt like something new and something I still look to as the ideal for how I want set pieces to be filmed in cinema these days. I, I really appreciate that when faced with the prompt, what's your favorite scene in uh, Fellowship of the Ring? Your answer is all of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, I told you it can't be objective here. 
Okay, I, I'll make you this promise, mostly because I know the answer to this, but when we get to the two towers, I will limit it to just one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it might surprise you, it's not Legolas flipping on a horse, but it's a close second. Yeah, is it the shield surfing? Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, now that I've been outed, I guess we'll move on, and we'll do our favorite quotes, and I'll let Emily go first, but let me play what she's going to... Uh, reference first. The road goes ever on and on Down from the door where it began Now far ahead the road has gone I must fall if I can Is that cheating? Yes, and I don't care. Um, I think this, to me, is the perfect symbol of everything that this movie gets right. Um, the poem that Gandalf is singing here is one that is from the books. Um, and while it is not a, a line that, or a poem that is necessarily a key feature of the films, this is really the the height of what these adaptations do well, which is that they're taking the brilliance of the books and building upon it. And lots of the other adaptations of Lord of the Rings, particularly Fellowship, feature this poem. But I promise you that none of them get the tune as brilliantly as this does. And so you've got like these this three sort of layers of brilliance here. One, you've got Ian McKellen absolutely selling the shit out of his performance as Gandalf. Then you've got this sort of excellent foundation work of of the the, the poetry, Tolkien's poetry and Fellowship of the Ring. And then third, you've got this sort of Howard Shore's uh, creative sort of genius and 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 sort of might taking what is already good work and really sort of overpowering it and making it just just absolutely excellent in in every conceivable way and and you know I always have this in my head I'm always singing it and and for good reason I think this is really this is really fellowship at its best yeah I don't think you're cheating I think it's a totally valid choice um, and we didn't get to sound clip that one earlier so uh, <laughs> in an earlier episode so I'm glad we get to drop it in now as for me, well, I'm going to go with this one. This is it. This is what? If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. Come on, Sam. Remember what Bilbo used to say? It's a dangerous business, Frodo. Going out your door, you step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Now, a big caveat is this isn't actually my favorite quote. The problem is that my favorite quotes were literally just in the last episode we recorded. <laughs> so I feel like it would be redundant to play Boromir's last words for you or Frodo replaying Gandalf's words in his head before he sets out to Mordor. But I really like this because I think, I don't know, it just perfectly captures the journey that we're about to go on. Um, because when you think about Frodo and Sam, they just really haven't ventured outside of the Shire. Um, and for Sam specifically, who takes a little piece of home with him all the way to Mordor, uh, like this being the furthest he's ever been from home, uh, it means a lot. It's something I thought about the first couple of times I've traveled, you know, outside of my bubble that I've been in for most of my life, which is basically the U.S. Midwest. 
Um, and then I like the Bilbo quote that kind of follows up, follows it up where if you don't keep your feet, you don't know where you might swept off, be swept off to, which, you know, it's about the journey, but it's also about being present in the moment, which is something I tend to forget a lot of the times, you know, my head's always in the clowns or looking off in the distance or to the horizon. My mind never where I was or what I was doing to quote Yoda. <laughs> um, so I really like that observation that we can always be moving, but always be present at the same time. Um, and it speaks to the great unknown of going on these kind of adventures. Um, even if Sam and Frodo really didn't know the scope and the dread of their journey at this point in the time. God, yeah, it's so good as well. I think this is like one of these scenes to me that that has the sort of like perpetual autumn feel and not like in the, the sort of hoity-toity fancy Tolkien way. Like this scene, this line feels to me like thinking that I'm about to start the next school year and that the leaves are about to be crunching on the ground and I'm about to have like pumpkin pie. It is that level of like there is anticipation, there is excitement, but there's also just immense comfort in it. That is a brilliant choice. Yeah. And I hope uh, we're not insulting anyone by not including the second breakfast line <laughs> as uh, one of our favorite quotes. It's great. And it's a great meme. Um, but I just think because of the emotionality of these films uh, and what they mean to us specifically is why we're not picking that one specifically. But it is a really funny bit. And I'm glad they included it. Um, and lastly, in terms of favorites, what is your favorite musical piece, which there really is no wrong answer, but there's so many good right answers. <laughs> so again, I think it. mine is like cheating. Well, it's not cheating, but it's the it's the one piece that gets both the kind of like quiet, soulful, mournful uh, elements of the the Fellowship of the Ring score, and then combines it with what is to me the most important part of the score, which is the big fucking horns. Um, and that that piece is, of course, Gil Rain's memorial. Um, and it has that sort of added bonus of uh, including a reference to the books that isn't really dealt with in any uh, in any uh, like significant way in the films, uh, which is the reference to, to Gil Rain, who is who is Aragorn's mother. Um, and, you know, it's it's not by any means my favorite scene, although it does lead up to my favorite scene, which is the fellowship walking through a Regian, but it, it is, uh, you know, a musical sort of encapsulation of this film uh, in, in a really brilliant way. And since I wasn't going to pick Concerning Hobbits, uh, the big blaring fellowship theme had to be the thing that I picked. Yeah. And Concerning Hobbits and the fellowship light motif are clearly the two best answers. Um, so I, I'm not even going to try and compete and say I have one that's equal to it, but I do want to shout out that lone French horn doing the Gondor theme during the council scene, just yes. because maybe as not like the most powerful music, but it's just like one of the smartest filmmaking choices. Um, just the way they incorporated it over Boromir and Aragorn, uh, what it's, what it, what that one horn standing alone could possibly symbolize about Gondor, about Boromir, about Aragorn. It just so deftly done that I'm just like kind of in awe thinking about it. Even if it's, I don't put on that like 12 seconds of French horn and jam out to it. Like I do the fellowship theme or concerning hobbits. And yes, I do jam out to those musical pieces. <laughs> um, but I think it just, it's, it's brilliant. I think is what I want to communicate more than anything else. Yeah. It's the creativity and like the thoughtfulness and, and the sort of care for the craft. And yeah, I agree. And it also gives Gondor the respect it deserves. <laughs>
All right, so we'll wrap up with our token token book section, and I really don't know what to do for this section uh, broadly, but I guess we can talk about how J.R.R. Tolkien's rolling in his grave. Um, but no, what we'll actually do is talk about our favorite changes and then perhaps our favorite passages. So we'll start with our favorite change, and I'll go first because I'm not going to say much. My favorite change is the ending, but we talked about it in depth over our last two episodes uh, the way they combine the ending of the Fellowship of the Ring book with book one, or book three of the Two Towers. I don't know what's the right way to say that. But I just think that was so masterfully done in a way to kind of coherently tie up theme and tone together um, that I really appreciate. And I think it's it's probably of the adaptation choices in the stories, my favorite between all three films. Mine is um, much less sort of structurally significant than that. And actually one that I like shamefully, I don't think I mentioned when we came across it, but it's the uh, condensing and editing of Galadriel's speech. Um, in the book, she's got this really clunky ass line that's like, in the place of the Dark Lord, you would have set up a queen, which is just like a mouthful and it doesn't sound great. And in uh, in in the films, it's much tighter and of course is also delivered by Kate Blanchett which is goes a long way to making anything sound great but it's just i think the the right level of editorialization on the the source text to really get like hit the nail on the head and while we're here why don't you tell us what your favorite book passage is uh-oh uh so uh my favorite book passage uh comes from uh chapters that are not covered in the film uh, because they are the Tom Bombadil chapters, um, and I am broadly kind of ambivalent or like mm, bored by Tom Bombadil as like a meme or whatever. Um, but the Fellowship chapters that that deal with Tom Bombadil have some of the best writing, and and so this is going to be a, a quite a long little uh, bit here. But I do want to read it because I think it gets to why I love uh, these books. Suddenly, Tom's talk left the woods and went leaping up the young stream over bubbling waterfalls, over pebbles and worn rocks, and among small flowers and close grass and wet crannies, wandering at last up onto the downs. They heard of the great barrows and the green mounds and the stone rings upon the hills and in the hollows among the hills. Sheeps were bleeding in flocks. Green walls and white walls rose. There were fortresses on the heights. Kings of little kingdoms fought together, and the young sun shone like fire on the red metal of their new and greedy swords. There was victory and defeat, and towers fell, fortresses were burned, and flames went up into the sky. Gold was piled on the biers of dead kings and queens, and mounds covered them, and the stone doors were shut, and the grass grew over all. Sheep walked for a while, biting the grass, but soon the hills were empty again. A shadow came out of dark places far away, and the bones were stirred in the mounds. Barrow whites walked in the hollow places with the clink of rings on cold fingers, and gold chains in the wind. Stone rings grinned out of the ground like broken teeth in the moonlight. And that is everything that I love about the Lord of the Rings. It's the 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 sort of immensity of of history, the the, the sort of breadth and nostalgia and 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 um intensity of what the 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 sort of feel, the pull of history is upon the present, combined with that sort of loss and blurriness 
um, engendered by really a, a loss of of archives and a loss of uh, or a non-existence of historians. It's the tremendously efficient writing that I think Tolkien does not get enough credit for. It's the really sort of evocative writing. You you it's hard to to read or, or hear that and and not have a picture of exactly what he's describing. And I think it's also the the sort of uh, the the fact that this paragraph in particular foreshadows or or sets up um, a lot of the important political themes later in Two Towers and Return of the Kings, which is the question of why do kingdoms fall and and what is the sort of gluttony or greed that that leads to the death of the state and and war and and sort of other ills and all of that is encompassed in this this beautiful little passage. Yeah, no, that's great. I hadn't ever really flagged the specific passage before, um, but I, I, it's brilliant, especially hearing you read it. I'm of the same mind of you. Like, I go, go in for some of the Tom Bombadil joking on Twitter, um, but in general, how I feel towards him is whatever. <laughs> um, not super important to me. Um, although I guess he has like a cool role in Lord of the Rings Online or so I've Hell heard. yeah, he does. Yeah. And his but, Goldberry is super hot in the game. <laughs> As I pictured her, as I pictured her, of course. <laughs> um, but I will say, if you do like that, uh, why don't you sign up for patreon.com slash nuclear bomb? Because we can go way deeper into Tom Bombadil if you want us to. Do it, um, do it, and do it. We absolutely will sing all his songs if we get to that goal. So um, I know that sounds like punishment, but trust me, you'll probably want to hear it. And I think my answer here is going to be a little bit of a cheat, but that's why I let Emily cheat with her favorite quote earlier, <laughs> um, because I'm going to read a quote that I already read earlier back in episode four, I believe, A Shortcut to Mushrooms. It is from Marietta Brandybuck, and it goes as such. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end, You can and you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself but you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you or following you like hounds. And I, I just feel like now reading that line, I can't separate it from Sam wading out into Nanhithowell to oh. follow Frodo into the east and into Mordor and just hear those words, even though they're Mary's words, it's very much an encapsulation of that sentiment. And I think they got that across in the films, but these words just always kind of move me. And I also cheated in the fact that I didn't really like flipping back through the books to find another quote because I was <laughs> too busy playing Elden Ring. But uh, this, like, because, you know, I don't even have to think, what is your favorite Fellowship of the Ring quote? I know it's this. Um, it really couldn't be anything else. I mean, it's it really gets, I think, in a way, few other lines in, the, in this book get that, that the real sort of importance of, of all of these films uh, and, and books is it, it all comes down to, to love and, and to loving one another. And what, what, a, what a beautiful way of doing that. I'm glad we get to have like actual emotionally resonant quotes this time around. Cause when we do this for the two towers, I'm going to be pulling the goofy Legolas lines as my favorite quotes. <laughs> that is one of the mirrors, unless my eye is cheated by some spell. <laughs> like, why is that your fucking favorite? I don't know. It just sounds fun. <laughs> I'm just going to do Gollum impressions the whole time. Ooh, that, oh, that, that was, that's even better than mine. <laughs> and that closes the book on this episode and on the fellowship of the ring. We have been My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. 
Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cap at my pod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and the other projects I've been working on, which, hey, I've been Manu. Uh, you can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I'm Ben Emily, and you can find me crying over fellowship over at JRR Tweeting on Twitter. And I didn't really mean to put this in the outro, but hey, Emily, thanks for doing this with me. This has been great so far. Um, and I look forward to another two movies of Brainworms with you. Here is to many more movies of Brainworms. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, who I also want to uh, shout out specifically here, as he's the one who makes us sound super good, who layers in all of our musical tracks and sound clips, and overall makes sure that we are giving you the highest quality audio that we can. So here's to you, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Woohoo! Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.